The following is a sermon by Pastor Todd Dykstra, teaching pastor of Maranatha Bible Church of Comstock Park, Michigan. For more information, go to mbcmi.org. To Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9. It is Christmas Sunday. It is uh, the Sunday before we celebrate our Savior's birth. And we want to once again go back to this passage that we began last week looking at and focusing our hearts and minds on the incredible reality of the coming of Jesus Christ as prophesied in Isaiah chapter 9. It's important we do this because in the midst of the tinsel, in the midst of the gingerbread cookies and the trees and the stockings and the shopping and the gifts, we of course need our hearts and minds reoriented to what Christmas is about. We are celebrating the incarnation of Jesus Christ, the arrival of God in human flesh, the the bringing together of the infinite, eternal, self-existent, self-sufficient, almighty God in the form of and the person of Jesus Christ. It's an astonishing reality, an almost incomprehensible truth for us as believers to wrap our minds around how is it possible for God to take on human flesh. But that's what happened. It's a wonder. The wonder of the incarnation, and and perhaps the wonder of the incarnation is furthered by the fact and magnified by the fact that the baby born 2,000 years ago is a king, is a king. You may not have noticed, but every song that we sang this morning referenced the fact that who was born that night is Jesus Christ, the King. You may have noticed as well in Matthew chapter 2, as I read this morning, that the Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born King of the Jews? It's incredible. On a winter's night in the little town of Bethlehem, nestled just south in the hills around Jerusalem in the land of Israel came a child who would be Savior and a king. It's incredible for us to think about that, that that little child, a little baby wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger, admired there by his earthly mother and father, was and still is to this day a king. Many of the Christmas songs that we sing this time of year reference that. Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. O come all ye faithful, joyful and triumphant, come ye, come ye to Bethlehem, come and behold him born the king of angels. Angels from the realms of glory, we just sang it this morning, come and worship, come and worship, worship Christ the newborn king. Joy to the world, the Lord has come, let earth receive her king. It's tremendous that that little baby wrapped in those cloths is none other than the king of the world and the universe. Let me read Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7 again. We began looking at them last week, but they really capture for us this remarkable reality that Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the promised anointed one for Israel is a king. Look at verse 6. For a child will be born to us, 
A son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. As I said last week, this is likely the most famous and the most familiar prophecy in the Old Testament about the coming of Christ. It is really what we would say the centerpiece of all Christmas prophecies. And it captures for us the hope of the people of the nation of Israel as they continue to live under one failed earthly king after another. Put yourself in their shoes. You're an Israelite, 700 BC, and you have experienced one godless, incompetent, and foolish ruler after another. Most of the kings of Israel, north and south kingdoms, were exactly that. They were failed, godless, earthly kings. And so, Israelites at this moment are looking forward to the ideal king, the true king, the deliverer, the anointed one, the Messiah, the son of David beyond comparison, the one who will actually come and be for them the king that they hope for. Who is it? Who would this king be? Who would this marvelous deliverer be? Through what magnificent person will the Lord accomplish this? And who would accomplish this great victory that is promised here in Isaiah chapter 9? Who would do this? Who would be the light that shines in the darkness of this nation? Look at verse 6. A child. A child. A son. A baby, an extraordinary child would come to be their deliverer. This is obviously none other than the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Savior of the world. We spent some time last week looking at the first part of this prophecy, verse 6. We began looking at three points about this ideal king. Let me quickly review what we did last week. First of all, we looked at the nature of the ideal king. The first of the three points is the nature of the ideal king. And we said that in verse 6, there is this wonderful first statement, that first line that captures for us both the humanity and the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. Somewhat of a veiled reference, but that's exactly what it is, a a reference to the incarnation here in verse 6. Notice the first phrase of verse 6, for a child will be born to us. That's a reference to his humanity. He will be born. He will enter this world like any other person, like every other person. He would have the most human of all arrivals upon the earth. He would experience a human birth, and he would enter this world just like you and me and every single other person who's ever lived. He would be born. That's a statement of his humanity. And notice the second phrase in that first line of verse 6, a son will be given to us. That's a statement to his deity, to the the fact that he's not just going to be born and that's going to be the beginning of his existence. No, he's going to be given to us, emphasizing his pre-existence. He has existed from eternity past. He will be the one given to us because he has always been. He is the second person of the Trinity, the one who has always existed, who is now at the right time given to us. 
So Isaiah, in a veiled reference, brings together both the humanity and the deity of Jesus Christ. That's his nature. Secondly, we began looking last week at the attributes of this ideal king. That's point number two, the attributes of the ideal king. And verse six goes on to describe for us what this king will be like. Four wonderful terms, four throne names, four character descriptions, four marvelous attributes that describe for us this glorious Messiah King, names that ultimately prove that He is the sovereign ruler of the world. Look at them. We looked at the first two last week. He will first be wonderful counselor. He will be the wonderful counselor. He will be in contrast to all the wicked kings of Israel and Judah. He will be the ideal king. He will be the the true king, the right king, and he will come with the ability to provide perfect counsel. He'll be wise. He'll know everything. He will need no advisors, no cabinet, no counsel himself, no input from others, no help from outside of him. He will have the wisdom to rule because he will know what is in every person's heart. Can you imagine a counselor like that? Can you imagine going to someone in need of help and you say, I need some assistance here, and having that person have the ability to perfectly perceive all that is going on in your heart and to give you counsel then that is particularly relevant and perfect for you? That's Christ, the perfect counselor. And in that manger, 700 years after this prophecy, is bound up God's wisdom. This little child, this little baby who is exactly that, the wonderful counselor who was able then to perfectly counsel the nation of Israel and all us who follow him. He's a wonderful counselor. Secondly, we looked last week at the fact that he's mighty God. He's mighty God. Another statement of his deity, another statement of the fact that he is the only sovereign, the true king, the only savior, the living God, the one right and true and living Lord over all things. He is that. He is the mighty God. And because he's mighty, he's able to do for Israel what none of the earthly kings could ever do. He could conquer their enemies. He could bring them the joy and gladness that they were looking for. And he would do it ultimately by changing their hearts a reality still future for the nation of Israel. As mighty God, He has the power to defeat Satan, the power to conquer sin, the power to liberate us from the power of the devil, the ability to redeem us, to answer our prayers. He is mighty God, and whatever you are struggling with and whatever is weighing on your heart today and whatever brings you great distress in your life, there is a mighty God in the person of Christ who is able to deal with that. That's the message of Christmas. He's a wonderful counselor. He's a mighty God. That's where we left off last week. I want to pick it up right here and look at the next one. Letter C, the number three, or the third name described here in this verse. Verse six is he is a eternal father. He's an eternal father. I love this. Who would the Savior be? Who would this Messiah, child, king be? He would actually be a father. 
Now, now think with me how, how wonderful this is, how significant fathers are. If you're here and you're, you're a dad, you understand this. You, you know what the impact of a father is upon his children. You, you know the significant impact you can have in a child's life, the, the ability that you have to shape a child. You, you know that God has called you to be a protector and a provider and a kind, gentle leader of your family, a servant to your family, one who nurtures your children and teaches them and disciplines them. And, and you have, hopefully, in your life a, a good example of a father figure. I'm aware of this. Every day with five kids, I'm fully aware of the fact that there's some weight, some pressure, some responsibility that comes with being a father to shepherd my kids and to love them and provide an example for them. You, you dads have a great capacity to impact your children for good or for bad. All of us fathers fail. But Messiah is a father who will never fail. He's the, the perfect father. He, he's the, the perfect dad, if you will. Verse 6 calls him the eternal father or the everlasting father. Literally, he's the father of eternity or the father of perpetuity. He, he is the father of the people of Israel. He's your father if you know Christ. And he has the ability, because of the fact he's God, to be a father forever. That, that's the point. He's a father without and he is one who will perpetually and always and forever be a father to his children. Now think with me for a moment. Some have been confused at this point. I thought, I thought he was a son. I, I thought this would be the son of God. And how is it possible that Isaiah calls him here the eternal father? He's not trying to discuss the nature of the Trinity here. He's not trying to solve all the Trinitarian disputes here. His point is simply this, that this Messiah will have a fatherly rule, that he will come and he will act as a father to his people. He will eternally care for them as a father does his children. He will be a protector. He will be a provider. He will not look out for his own interest alone, but he will be those who works for the benefit of his children. That's what this Messiah will be like. He will care for them. He will love them. He will discipline them. He will instruct them. He will shepherd them. And he will do that forever for his people eternally. That day has not yet come for the nation of Israel. That day they're still waiting that. That day they're still looking forward to. They're still looking forward to the future when their Messiah is their father and will be the protector and the provider that they need and are longing for. They have yet to receive him as their father. And because of that, they are on hold as a nation. But the day is coming when God will do a work in their hearts and turn their hearts toward him. And when that happens, they will be his children and he will be their father. And if you've come to embrace this Christ as Lord and Savior. He's your Father, a loving Father, a gentle Father, a kind Father, a, a careful Father with you. He knows exactly what you need. He knows exactly where you're struggling. He knows exactly what you are longing for. And Christ, your Savior, is also your eternal Father. Maybe you've not had a good role model in the earthly father. Maybe you've not had a perfect example in an earthly father, but in Christ you have what you are lacking. 
you have the eternal Father. So he is wonderful counselor. He is mighty God. He is eternal Father. And then there's this fourth quality mentioned at the end of verse 6. Notice it with me. He's also called the, the Prince of Peace. He's the Prince of Peace. A remarkable description of our Savior. He's the Prince of Peace. Isn't this what everyone's after? Isn't this what the world wants? Isn't this what you and I secretly want? If we're, if we're honest, this is what we're longing for. We want inner peace. It's a term that's thrown around so often today. We want relational peace. We, we don't want all this conflict in our family and in, and in these relationships that we have. We don't want that. We want world peace. People are talking about that all the time. I looked up this week. There's a Wikipedia site entitled World Peace. And it says this, world peace is the concept of an ideal state of happiness, freedom, and peace within and among all people and nations of the earth. And then it went to list a number of the world peace theories that might be able to bring in this world peace that all people are interested in. Here are some of those theories. Peace through strength. Peace through domination. Peace through authority. Peace through force. Peace through military. That's one option. That's one theory. Then there's the the theory of peace through world revolution or socialism. The idea of economic redistribution to make sure that everyone's cared for and, and peace should then prevail in the midst of that. There's a theory of peace through democracy or peace through capitalism, the belief that perhaps those economic governments can bring in world peace. Can I just tell you, I should probably write my own Wikipedia. It's not going to happen through any of those things. There will be no inner peace. There will be no world peace. There will be no relational peace through any of those things. Because our world is in chaos. Strife, conflict, fighting, dissension, discord, unrest characterize our world. And they have ever since the time of the fall, ever since Adam and Eve plunged humanity into sin, this world has been dominated by unrest and chaos and strife. And you just need to look at what happened to Adam and Eve's first two children to prove exactly that. People are in turmoil. What's the answer? What is the answer to all this unrest and what is the answer to all this chaos and what is the answer to all of this turmoil that this world is in? It's found here in verse 6 in the last description of Messiah. He is Prince of Peace. He's the answer. He's the answer to the inner peace that you're seeking. He's the answer to the relational peace that you're seeking. He's the answer to world peace, which this world constantly seems to be after. He makes peace with God for those who surrender to Him in faith. Remember Romans 5 verse 1 says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You want right peace? You want the, the, the starting point of peace? It starts with a relationship with the Lord through His Son, Jesus Christ. So he brings peace with God, but he also brings the peace of God, the the kind of peace that settles into your heart and soul and calms your spirit. Galatians 5 verse 22 says, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience. Incredible. 
that's where this peace comes from. Messiah would be the prince of peace. He would be the one that would usher in this peace. He would be the one that would maintain the times of peace. One writer says this way, he says, what sort of king is this? He is the peaceful king, one who comes in peace and one who establishes peace, not by a brutal squashing of all defiance, but by means of a transparent vulnerability which makes defiance pointless. Somehow through him will come the reconciliation between God and man that will then make possible reconciliation between man and man. First, reconciliation between God and man, which will then usher in reconciliation between fellow humans. That's what Christmas is about. The arrival of the Prince of Peace. The arrival of the one, the very one, who would be God's answer to all the confusion and all the chaos and all the conflicts of life bound up in that infant, in that child, resting in that manger 2,000 years ago was God's answer to all the strife in this world, whether it be national or personal. And so I ask you, do you know him? Do you have a relationship with the wonderful counselor? Do you know the Prince of Peace? Do you know the Mighty God? Do you have a relationship with the Everlasting Father? That's what we are celebrating. This is not just a Christian holiday that gives us something to do. This is the celebration of the very one who would usher in the very things that you and I and God's people Israel need. It's a marvelous description. Now, here's the question. How will Messiah prove that he is these things? How how will you know for certain that he will be the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the eternal father, the prince of peace? Well, he came in his first coming and he died a death. He did not have to die in order to secure our salvation. That's one way he proved it. But there's another point. It brings us to number three, the third point. We'll spend the rest of our time on this one. The reign of the ideal king. The reign of the ideal king. Verse 7 tells us that this king, this Messiah, this anointed one, this deliverer, this one who's promised to the people of Israel, he will actually be a ruler with absolute and total authority and power to rule over a kingdom. Look at verse 7. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. I love this. How will Messiah prove that he is all of those things described in verse 6? How do you know for certain that he will be this kind of king? going to have a kingdom. He's going to have a throne. He's going to have a government. He's going to exercise complete authority. He will one day rule the nations of the world and all the governments of the world will one day rest on his shoulders. Think about this. Look at verse 6. We skipped over this last week because we're going to come to it right now. Look at the second phrase in verse 6. And the government will rest on his shoulders. The government 
the world's system of governing will actually rest on his shoulders. He will be the government of the world. That's tremendous. I don't enjoy politics. You may or may not. If you do, that's fine. I I don't. My least favorite class in high school was U.S. government. Uh, My least favorite class in college was political science. No offense to you poli-sci majors. I just didn't get into it. I don't enjoy it. I don't like all the rhetoric, all the bickering, all the antics, all the egos, all the posturing for power. I don't enjoy all that goes into a government shutdown two days ago. I don't really care about politics. But I'll tell you, this is the kind of politics I can get into. This is the kind of government I'm interested in. This is the kind of government that should captivate our hearts and captivate our souls because this king is coming and he will rule with all power and all authority. And by the way, I've said it before, this will not be a democracy. Democracies are great. It is probably the best we could do in our realm as humans. It's probably the best that fallen humanity can do, but this will not be a democracy. This will be a monocracy. This will be a loving dictatorship. This will be a rule by a benevolent king. This will be a rule by one who is absolutely in total command and control. He will be the greatest political leader we've ever known. And by the way, there will be no voting. No more polls, no more campaigns. Our hope as believers is not in a democracy. Our hope as believers is in the Messiah, the King, the Savior, the one who was born in Bethlehem, who himself will be the world ruler someday. Turn with me to Psalm 2. Hold your fingers here in Isaiah 9. Go back to Psalm to the second psalm. And I want, I want you to see that even the psalmist acknowledges that one day everything ultimately in the universe will be subject to him. Everything in this human realm, everything under God's kingdom, under his throne in the universe will actually be subject to his son, the anointed. Look at Psalm 2. Let me read the whole thing. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. Do you know what God thinks of governments like that? Do you want to know what God thinks of pagan rulers and pagan kings and governments that will not acknowledge him? Look at verse 4. He who sits in the heavens laughs. Did you know God laughs? He laughs at arrogance. He scoffs at those in such pride and arrogance. Verse 4, the Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, but as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. Say, who is it? Verse 7, I will surely tell you of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son, 
Today I have begotten you. Who's this king? Who's this ruler? It's the son of the God, of the ruler of the universe. And what will he do for this son? Verse 8, ask of me and I will surely give you the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. Do you want to know what God the Father is going to give to God the Son as his inheritance? It's you and me as his redeemed and it's the nations of the earth will one day be in the possession of Jesus Christ. And what's he going to do? Verse 9, You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Now therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son that He will not become angry and you perish in the way. For His wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all those who take refuge in Him. It's a warning. It's a warning at the end of the psalm to listen to this reality, to understand that the true king of kings is not earthly authorities. It is God's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Go back to Isaiah chapter 9. Daniel chapter 2, verse 44 says, In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed, and that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it will itself endure forever. You realize there's coming a kingdom that will endure forever? Zechariah 14 verse 9 says, The Lord will be king over all the earth, and in that day the Lord will be the only one and His name the only one. There's coming a day when the only king and the only sovereign and the only ruler is none other than Christ. Revelation 19 tells us what it's going to be like when he returns. Revelation 19, verse 15, from his mouth comes a sharp sword so that with it he may strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God. There's coming a day when Jesus Christ returns and he destroys all nations who will not submit to him and bow the knee. Revelation chapter 20 tells us that he will rule and reign for 1,000 years. That's the kind of government I could get into. No Republicans. No Democrats. No independents. No libertarians. No appointment of chief justices. No partisan politics. This verse, verse 7, tells us exactly what this government is going to be like. Now, you need to know it's not in operation yet, obviously. Contrary to our friends who believe the kingdom is now, it's not. There is no earthly kingdom yet. There's a spiritual kingdom which Christ rules over, and there is a universal kingdom which God rules over, but there is no earthly kingdom yet. It's still future. It's still coming. And when it comes, verse 7 describes for us what it's going to be like. Let me show you four characteristics of the coming kingdom of the true king. The first thing I want you to notice about his kingdom is it will be an everlasting or ever-increasing kingdom. The first thing you need to know is verse 7, it says it will be ever-increasing. There will be no end to the increase of his government. Think about this. 
when Christ comes and establishes his rule upon the earth, it will grow and it will expand and it will get better and better and it will continue to improve. You you say, how is that possible if he's perfect and God is perfect? How can his kingdom increase? There's a mystery to this that I confess I don't understand, but there's going to be some element to the kingdom of Christ that it will actually increase and get better and expand and improve forever. Which means it will be an internal kingdom, an everlasting kingdom, a kingdom which Daniel 7 verse 14 says, his dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Daniel 7 verse 27 says something similar. He says his kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom and all the dominions will serve and obey him. The, the king is coming and will establish an eternal throne beginning first in a literal 1,000-year millennial reign on this earth from Jerusalem, which will then one day blend into the eternal kingdom according to Revelation chapter 21 and 22. That's what Christmas is about. Do you understand what we're celebrating this time of year? Not reindeer. Not Santa not presence, the coming king of the universe whose feet will one day be upon this earth in Jerusalem ruling and reigning with all power and all authority over his ever-increasing kingdom. Does that put Christmas in a little different perspective? It's critical for us to make sure that we understand these things because it will first be an ever-increasing kingdom. Secondly, I want you to notice it will be a peaceful kingdom. A peaceful kingdom. Look at the, the, the last phrase of the first line in verse 7. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. We, we talked about this as his nature and his attributes. He is the prince of peace, but we must connect the, the expression of this peace with the kingdom he's going to usher in. So listen very carefully. You have to understand this. He's not just the prince of peace in himself. He is that, and he brings peace, and he will do that in your heart and with his people who will embrace him. He will bring the peace that you're longing for, but you must connect the peace that Christ will bring with the very kingdom that he will bring in. They're connected. In fact, complete and lasting peace comes with the righteous reign of the Messiah. They're connected. You want to know true peace? You want to see and experience everlasting peace? It will come when Christ establishes his earthly throne. Turn with me back just a couple chapters to Isaiah chapter 2. Let me take just a couple moments and and let me give you a couple samples from the book of Isaiah itself that explains for us this peaceful reign, this peaceful government, this peaceful rule of Messiah. Turn back to Isaiah chapter 2. And I want you to notice verses 2 through 4. It says this, Now it will come about that in the last days the mountain of the house of the Lord. What's that? The mountain of the house of the Lord. What's that? That's the Mount Zion. 
That's the mountain upon which the temple will one day be rebuilt. He says that it's coming about in the last days, meaning it's still future. It's in the last days before Christ returns. The mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains, and it will be raised above the hills. Do you know there's going to be a cataclysmic event surrounding the second coming of Jesus Christ? Zechariah 14 tells us that there will likely be an event, a geological event that actually causes Mount Zion to raise up above the mountains around it. Exactly what Isaiah says. Mount Zion will be lifted up and exalted above the mountains and the hills around it. And it will be a place where all the nations stream to it. Do do you realize this? When Christ establishes his kingdom, all the nations of the earth will flock to Jerusalem. They'll want to be where Christ is. They will want to travel there. They they will go there in peace. And why? Verse 3 tells us why they're going to go there. And many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. Why? That he may teach us concerning his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For the law will go forth from Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Why will the nations of the earth want to travel to Jerusalem when Christ is ruling and reigning there? Because they're going to hear the word of God spoken. They're going to hear it proclaimed, and they're going to want to listen. They're going to want to embrace the law that is coming forth from Zion. Now watch this, verse 4. And he will judge between the nations and will render decisions for all peoples, for many peoples, and they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks And nation will not lift up sword against nation, and never again will they learn war. You want to know peace? This world has no concept of peace. You want to know what peace really looks like? That's it right there. When Christ is ruling here, universal peace will exist to the point that all weapons of warfare, swords and spears, will no longer be necessary. They will actually be pounded into implements to garden. They're not needed. They're not necessary because Messiah has come and brought peace. Go over to chapter 11. Isaiah chapter 11. Verses 1 through 9 also describe for us this incredible kingdom and the peace that will come with it. Look at verses 1 through 5. I think we read them, read them last week. Look, it says, Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and strength, and the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord, and he will not judge by what his eyes see. This is speaking of Christ, the Messiah, the branch or the stem from Jesse. He's going to judge by what his eyes don't not see, nor will he make a decision by what his ears hear. But with righteousness, he will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. And he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. And righteousness will be the belt about his loins, and faithfulness the belt about his waist. This is how he is going to rule with justice and fairness and complete righteousness. And look at how verses 6 through 9 describe the peace 
that will come upon his kingdom. Look at verse 6. And the wolf will dwell with the lamb. And the leopard will lie down with the young goat. And the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and a little boy will lead them. And the, the cow and the bear will graze, their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox, and the nursing child will play by the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child will put his hand over the viper's den, and they will not be hurt or destroy in all the holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. How extensive will the peace be that Christ ushers in? It will impact even the animal kingdom. And animals that don't normally get along are going to get along. It's incredible. There's animal-to-animal harmony. So if you love those National Geographic things where the lion destroys the wildebeest. Not going to be able to see him. Sorry. There's no death in the animal kingdom under Christ. The wolf lays down with the lamb, the leopard with the goat, the calf with the lion, the cow with the bear. And not only that, not only is there animal-to-animal harmony, there's animal-to-human harmony in the peace of the kingdom that Christ installs. To the point that a child, verse 8 tells us, can actually play with cobras and vipers. How cool is that? Complete peace and harmony. To the point that verse 7 says, even lions will eat straw. Pre-fall return. It's incredible. People have often said, why, why do lions have big teeth in the original creation if they were meant to eat meat? They weren't meant to eat meat. And there's going to be a return one day to the time when they will eat straw when the Messiah ushers in this peace. Absolutely incredible. Go back to Isaiah chapter 9. He's describing for us this incredible reign of peace. Zechariah 9 verse 10 says, He will speak peace to the nations. Isaiah chapter 60 verse 17 says, I will make peace your administrators and righteousness your overseers. There is a promise all throughout the Old Testament that the coming kingdom of Jesus Christ will be a kingdom of peace. He's already come once. He's offered himself as a sacrifice, and when he comes back again, he's going to usher in a kingdom. He will put down all of his enemies, and he will rule and reign such that there will be complete peace. It's incredible. So this government of Christ will be ever-increasing. It will be a government of peace. Thirdly, it will be Davidic. Two more things that he mentions for us. It will be Davidic. In other words, the Messiah will be the rightful heir of David's throne, Look at verse 7. He says that this Messiah, this coming deliverer, this mighty God, this wonderful counselor, this eternal father, this prince of peace will come and rule and reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom. 
this Messiah will be none other than the son of David, the greater son of David, not Solomon himself, but the son of David, the ultimate son of David, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will establish a house, who will establish a kingdom, who will establish a throne. This is the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel chapter 7. God promised through David in that covenant way back in the 2 Samuel chapter 7 that he will give him a kingdom and a throne and his son will sit on it. And who's his son? It's Christ. By the way, he's not ruling on that throne right now. Again, some of our other friends think that he is. They think that he's presently ruling on David's throne. He's not. You say, how do you know that? Because David's throne is on the earth and Christ is presently ruling in heaven. David's throne is an earthly throne. God's throne is a heavenly throne. They're not the same thrones. So David is not, uh, Christ is not presently ruling over David's throne. There's coming a day when he will return and he actually will sit on David's throne in Jerusalem over a literal 1,000-year kingdom. That's why we're premillennialists here at Maranatha. We believe in a future, actual, earthly kingdom, in the kingdom where Christ is ruling and reigning as the seed of David on his rightful throne. It's tremendous. Last one, it will be just. It will be ever-increasing, it will be peaceful, it will be Davidic, and it will be just. Look at verse 7. To establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. It's coming a day when Christ will rule with absolute justice and absolute righteousness. And he will be all that Israel's kings never were. They wanted a just ruler. They wanted a righteous king. They wanted one who would conform to God's holy character. They wanted that and they never had it because they were themselves guilty of it and the kings just followed along in their steps and the people then followed their steps. And so no Israelite king ever followed and met the conformity to God's law and word that the people needed and wanted. And yet there is coming a king who will meet that. He will uphold justice and righteousness and every single decision he makes will be correct. Can you imagine that? A politician who actually makes right decisions every time? A king who rules with complete perfection? A judge who judges righteously every single time? A government whose every decision will be correct? It's tremendous. Is it going to happen? Look at the end of verse 7. The zeal of the Lord of hosts might, maybe, hopefully will accomplish this. Oh, no. Will absolutely accomplish this. There is no question. This coming king, he's already come once. He's coming again. He will establish his throne as is described here. And the Lord of hosts will do this someday. There is no doubt about this coming kingdom. That's what Christmas is about. Not about tinsel. It's not about shopping. It's not about the parties that you're going to go to the next couple days. It's great. Enjoy it. Have a wonderful time. 
It's not about any of that. It's about a king who will one day establish his throne and all rulers will be abolished and he alone will be the supreme king and lord of all the earth where there will be no power, no king or lord who can oppose him, none ever. There will be no higher authority and his reign will be absolute over all. Do you look forward to that? You know, at Christmas we look back to his first coming and we celebrate the fact that he's come, he was born, he died a death he did not deserve to die to bring us forgiveness and bring us to the Father. But there's as much at Christmas that we should be looking forward to in his second coming. So do you? I trust that this glimpse of the future is a helpful reminder to us about what Christmas is about. Would you pray with me? Father, this is an incredible Old Testament prediction about what our Savior is going to do when He establishes His rule upon this earth. We know, Father, that had He come the first time and was He received by His people, He would have instituted this government and this rule and this kingdom, but he was rejected. And yet that did not thwart your plans. In fact, that was your plan from the beginning to have your son die a criminal's death in order that he could redeem us from our sins so that he could then return one day to a people who will be redeemed, who will then welcome his kingdom and welcome his rule and welcome his government. Lord, we pray that the day would be today. We pray that today might be the day when we see our Savior and His kingdom is soon put in place. Lord, it's possible that there are some here today who are here because it's Christmas, who are here because they feel a need to come to church on a Sunday, and, and yet, Lord, they may not know this King. And so, Father, our earnest prayer and petition to You is that You would draw all in this room to Yourself. God, we plead with You that if the eyes of some in this room have not yet been opened to this King, that You would see, show them and they would see the glory of God in the face of Christ and that they would run from their sin and run from their rebellion and run from their indifference to this king and would embrace him wholeheartedly and acknowledge him and bow the knee before him before they have to bow the knee unwillingly someday. So Lord, we thank you. We thank you for the hope that this gives us. We thank you that at Christmas time we remember his first coming and we look ahead with great joy to his second coming. It's in his name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon by Pastor Todd Dykstra, teaching pastor of Maranatha Bible Church in Comstock Park, Michigan, where we exist to display God's glory, declare God's truth, delight in God's Son, and disciple God's people. No part of this digital file may be reproduced or distributed without prior written consent. For permission, go to mbcmi.org.